1: All right, guys. So welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. And today, another incredible guest I've got on board. So we were fortunate enough to have this person come on and do a virtual live the other day and run us through a guided meditation session. He's had an incredible career spanning, well, over 20 years now. So I'd love to introduce Wesley Gear First of all, thank you for being a part.
2: It's an honor and a privilege. Thanks for having me. And thanks for what you do, Glenn.
1: You are welcome. And thank you for what you do. Now, to, well, the majority of the people know who, who, who you are, <laughs> but I'm just going to go over your bio a little bit just to introduce you more. So you've been a professional musician for over 20 years. You first found success at the founding member of Jive Records artist Head PE as guitarist, songwriter, and producer. After touring the world for eight years, you left the band for a lifestyle change and ultimately landed in rehab. Then in 2010, almost three years sober, you was approached to play the legendary band Corn. You joined Corn. I've worked for the next several years, traveling to 42 countries, headlining shows, playing to crowds of 80,000 people and appearing on a number of recordings and cable and TV shows. Wow. Bloody hell, mate. (laughs) Incredible career. And I've not even finished. Your music's been featured in many feature films, video games, radio and television shows. And what I absolutely love about yourself, what I've come to learn, is... You also, you're very open in terms of mental health and that's why we we connected in terms of the campaign and what you do and rock to recovery because you went through yours, which we're going to touch upon a little bit later in the chat. But first of all, back to your career spanning 20 years, what ultimately first got you into the profession of music?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like a lot of people who have careers like music or ballet or being a football player, you're just kind of called to it, you know. Music resonated with me. I, I mean, I was around, uh, I had a musical family, so maybe that made it more mentally accessible that, hey, I could play and not just listen to music. There's a bunch of uh, musicians around me. By the way, speaking of mental health, this is Paulo Santo. And <laughs> just the smell makes me go in a nice mood. Um, <laughs> um, so I was just called to it. I mean, I was, grew up around classical music. My grandfather was the director of music at a Church in Massachusetts, which is back then was very traditional. It wasn't rock bands; it was like you know um, choirs and organs and um, you know chamber music ensembles. And he played the well. He played the carillon, which most people don't know what it is, but it's the bell towers, but not the ones where they just have a couple bells that are set up to play one song. It's literally every every note on a piano, if you will, has a bell, and the big notes are I mean they're giant bells. And he would play these levers, and he was famous for transcribing classical pieces onto these bells you know he would play and give uh, recitals out on what was called Boston Common it was this little pond so I was exposed to it but uh it's funny because when I heard Smoke on the Water which is just bam 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 very like cutting and I was like whoa what's that and I was very young but I remember it stuck with me Anyhow, fast forward, I heard some rock and roll Van Halen, Iron Maiden, you know, and I just like, I wanted to make those guitar, those sounds on the guitar. I wanted to know how they can make the sounds, And I got a guitar and I became quickly obsessed.
1: So did you, I, did you say you're self-taught then or did you go and get lessons? Well,
2: <laughs> technically, I used to not say I got lessons. I bought a guitar and literally got lessons within a week. So I, I didn't know anything. My teacher actually has died he was in kiss for a moment his name was mark norton he worked at a local lear's music in garden grove he was a shredder and you're talking 80s shredder guy and i got lessons from him he gave me the modes which is very you know complex scales and it's like i didn't you know what was the point of teaching me modes he should have been just showing me little chords god bless you mark but uh he kind of half-assed played paid attention to me in the lessons i didn't even know how to tune the guitar he didn't teach me how to tune the guitar yeah. came in and I was playing the song with the wrong tuning and he didn't correct me but anyhow so I had three lessons and then after that at that time what we would do is this really dates me but we would order like there was instead of YouTube and instructional videos it was cassette tapes and you would order them in the back of Circus Magazine which was a rock and roll magazine and it would take six to eight weeks to get to you and it would be like Randy Rhodes lick number one Randy Rhodes lick number one so back and that's how we learned. And you went to different friends' houses who could play and they just something that you didn't know. And yeah, you get up. I learned a lot out of magazines too, which would I'd read an article on Steve Vai and they'd say, he uses in a Mixolydian scale and I'd listen and go, oh, that's how he gets
1: that sound. And so just collected info, teaching myself. Do you think, because of what I know about you now and, and kind of your spiritual journey and things like that, um, firstly, I'll ask you, you seem like an empath. So you listen. So do you think, like, thinking back, being an empath and coming more in tune with it now, back then, an empath tends to be creative because they can listen or they can see more? Um, I a connection there? Sorry? Do you think there's kind of a connection there? Just because I've noticed so creatives. They're very in tune with... I'm not... In my photography, I'm not technical, but I've, I've got the eye. I can see something and create that something that resonates. Same as you with your ear.
2: Well, I think for me, my experience is it's because I'm emotional. So um, I feel like I've been blessed to be music that's emotional. I, um, You know, have I sold a bajillion records? No. Am I a listener? No. But I've always had like when I write a song even if it's just straight guitar I can convey an emotion like I can write a song without vocals that have people react to it and Mm -hmm. and I think that ties into being empathic and just like for me that's how music spoke to me is on an emotional level and you know there's a lot of people who are out there who are technical players who learn all the chords and they're putting them together and maybe they're fancy sing you know gymnastically but Where's that emotion? And so yeah. that's where I've always tied to this is really in an emotional sense. What does it make me feel?
1: Yeah. So, h- how did the transition come about from you loving and having a passion of music to them founding um, Head PE? Yeah. So,
2: in the era I grew up, I was obsessed with the guitar, as I told you. It was literally my obsession. Like, some people might skate, surf, or something. And there'd be like parties at school, and people would say, oh, so and so was at this party with his guitar, and we would go over there, and then we had like out, like total nerves, but you know,
0: nah, 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 oh yeah, blah,
1: nah, nah.
2: you know, started having little garage bands. It was like I just, as soon as I started playing guitar, it was like it wasn't just playing guitars, like I want to make these sounds, which means I want to write these songs, which means I want to put out a record, which means I want to play for the people. So it was garage bands at 15. I had many bands with no singer playing with a band with my first singer, getting out in clubs. And just, it was like, like I was saying earlier, it wasn't a choice for me. It's like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. I remember times at 18 or 17 years old, sitting in the car drunk with a friend and listen to music. You know, you have those deep talks. He's like, you don't think you can make it, do you? Because back then they called it making it, like get the record deal and all that. That was the term. And I would turn on the radio. And I was like, hear that? I can do that. To me, it seemed achievable, and uh, that's what I did. The funny thing is, so how we got to head PE is I had a really rocky life. I got kicked out of high schools. I just wasn't. I just didn't care. I wasn't connected. And I was just bored and rebellious. And uh, I finally got a good job, and I was there for about eight years, I think, at this insurance company. And anyhow, I was moving desks one day, and I was looking in, and I had all these flyers from all these bands. And now I'm like mid twenties, maybe, and I'm like are you a loser? Like, should you give this up? Look at all these bands that suck, that went nowhere. It wasn't short after that, that I saw a singer play at a club who ended up being the singer of Head P.E. I was like, that guy has the energy and intensity. And then we got together and masterminded Head P.E. I was super dorky still. Like a lot of bands. You can look at Korn or Pantera was like a glam band. There's all these, or, you know, artists change. You can always go back to their first pictures and they're like, that guy was a dork, you know, or whatever the word is. Yeah. So he and I transformed and, and you know went on a big search to figure out our sound and our style and the rest is history.
1: You know. Yeah, and and back then, I mean, these days there's a lot of people obviously through social media that can get get spotted, get seen, and everything. Back in those days, how did you how did you stand out, or was it just gigging and clubs and then?
2: Yeah, it was uh, – you pa- it's crazy, man. It's like as time goes on when we talk about these things, they sound more and more absurd or more and more antiquated. But you passed out flyers. Um, I've always been very creative and, like, I like to crack the code on things. And so the L.A., you know, there was a while – that everybody's heard of the Sunset Strip where on a Friday or Saturday – on these sidewalks between the clubs there, the Rainbow, the Roxy, the, you know, whatever, there's a number of them, um, the whiskey, it was a sea of people. You could just go pass out flyers, so you had, that was your marketing niche. It was a spot you went to, but that died out, like, after Motley Crue, after all the glam washed out, right before the Seattle scene, so um, we had a scene down here in the beach that was starting that I was smart enough to notice, because I'm such, I love the beach, I moved down to Huntington Beach and skateboarding was like making a huge comeback because it kind of died out snowboarding was going big and there was all this industry culture there was a bunch of strippers around too and that added to the culture and there's all these clubs that were having like one band play it was like this template that came out one band would play a local band and then they'd have some dj spend fun disco songs online like disco came back mm-hmm. so in the club you have strippers and sexy girls and and one band and so people would come because well anybody can sit through one band and you had built-in uh fans so it was about aligning with like action sports and then at that time we had a club in Huntington Beach as famous 5902 that Deftones played at, Corn played at, um, you know, all these bands, uh, Shrinky Dinks, which turned into Sugar Ray. So there was a scene we plugged into. I mean, Rage Against the Machine came out of this area. There was a, there, it was just a massive scene coming out as music was changing.
1: Wow. And like you say, the rest was history. What I love to ask people, though, is because...
2: The uh, Incubus, I forgot about them. Yeah, we all played System of Down. We all played clubs together, man.
1: Wow. Yeah. But um, um, what I loved what I love to, what I love to um, get to know about people and because with the campaign, it's it a lot of kind of de-celebritizing and bringing people back to know everyone as humans, humanity. So I always like to ask people on the outskirts of things, and when we see pictures of you, like you play to 80,000 people, you've been here there and everywhere. On the outside, people would think you must be an extrovert and you can get out. Is that something you've had to work on? And I ask everybody on the podcast this, or was you an introvert? And then that's confidence that you've had to grow. It's interesting. This whole concept of
2: extrovert, introvert is really trippy. So I think there's, first of all, misconceptions about what it is. Uh, What I've been taught recently, assuming this is true, is that it's where you get rejuvenated. Do you get rejuvenated and fulfilled? Like your energy comes back and you need to be around a crowd or when you rejuvenate, do you, have, do you like to be alone? Like is where, you know, and so I'm both. Sometimes I need a crowd. Sometimes I, I uh, need to just be by myself it can be too much. Uh, but I think there's something we say in recovery is we say a lot of people who struggle from addiction are uh, egomaniacs with an inferiority complex, which has been very true for me. So I was thinking about this in a in a deep meditation I had last night. I wanted so hard to be liked by people. Like I was so insecure and I felt like nobody liked me. Maybe it's because I was bullied. Maybe, who knows why, but that's just how I felt. I didn't understand that people kind of are your friends on a default. I went out of my way to try to be funny to where people, I this is something I hadn't thought of in a long time. People used to say to me, I bet you get your ass kicked a lot. I bet you get... And that's because I was such a smart ass, but when they would say that it would confuse me and hurt me because I was just trying to be funny. And so this happens. It's this overcompensation thing. So it's this egomaniac. I was coming across really cocky and, um, and I was really pushing a lot of people off. So Um, you know, I think what you find is with a lot of musicians is that we, we were, and I'm not trying to like wave the poor us flag, but you'll find that a lot of us were bullied or abused or super insecure and super emotional. And then you, so you want to create, and it's kind of like this way that you can become cool. You can say that any millions of ways. So you have this desire to create because you have this pain and emotion. Plus it's a way to kind of connect with people. And then, so you're forced out there to put on this facade because it's all fake. And then if you get success, you got to be everybody's friend. Cause as soon as somebody goes, Hey man, Oh my God, Wes. So nice to meet you. Like, yeah, what's up? Oh, that guy's a dick, man. You're like, fuck. So now I got to please everybody. And if you're really insecure and like have some other emotional issues, which I did, it's a mind fuck because I want there to be, there's a book called the DSM five. I think we have in America. It's about medical diagnosis, diagnoses, There should be fame in there, man, because it's a really fucked up circle. I'm not in a like poor us, but it's like somebody said to me, how could Chester, Chester Bennington do that? He had everything. And I can't speak for Chester and God forgive me the times I've said this and people might think I'm trying to. But imagine if you have everything and you're still miserable, then you're really fucked. You know what I mean? So when you're in this world where you got to make everybody happy, you got all these pressure and you have to be kind of put on that smiling face all the time and you get very isolated. And then if you have this life, so, you know, when I was touring, I would get done playing a show, 1200 people, which feels like a million people when it's your show. And I would go to the back of the bar and drink to oblivion because there's just something in me. And this is the important part. It almost doesn't matter why, but some of us are wired just to feel lost and alone. So I would just get done playing, yeah, good night, and I'd be like, I'm so alone. And I don't know what, you know, we what really need to get down to the voice because there's the emotion which is almost has no words, right? I'm sad. I feel yeah, alone. What would that voice be if you kept drilling down? What would it say? I feel lonely. Then it'd probably go like, I feel like nobody loves me. I feel like nobody cares about me. It's not true at all. But you have that feeling. And until we can go down and really give a message to those feelings and go, where is this coming from, and really try to work on it, there's little hope for any sort of recovery.
1: Yeah. You know? when, it, when it comes to your mental health yourself, you're very vocal about it and what you've achieved with Rock to Recovery, which we'll get on in a little while. But in terms of when you were just saying there with your emotional struggles and what you were trying to deal with, And you said you used to drink yourself to oblivion. Did that then obviously go into an addiction problem where you was numbing your pain through alcohol or how bad did it get for you? So this is something that I like to share. I'm kind of going a little off your thing
2: Uh, because I always talk to people about addiction and and especially or alcoholism. The, The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the doctors at the time, there was a certain class of people that wouldn't recover. The experts in the field were like, "When you're this much of an alky or an addict, we can't save you. Like we know how this goes: jails, institutions, death." But they started going, "Maybe these people have this disease," and they started figuring out a way that would recover as and they would recover as crazy as sounds through a spiritual experience provided by the 12 steps. The point I'm getting at is, in that disease model they came up with, one of the key components is that I have an allergy. That when I drink or consume something like wine, it makes me want more, more, more. Other people do not have that. And I've seen this again and again. Now, some people get into a bad habit. Maybe they have a surgery or they're just bored and they're taking their, friend, their parents' par- pharmaceuticals and it gets develops in a habit. They maybe don't have that allergy. So their recovery path can be different. Maybe some people have trauma and they're hiding from the trauma and emotional stuff. And once they deal with the trauma, they're cool but they don't have the allergy for me, even though I would tell you like Coors Light wasn't my problem. If I have a Coors Light, it's deadly. It will set off the allergy. Now maybe you and I could have a beard one night. I could pull it off, but in time, and I've seen this again and again and again. So when you talk about me and my addiction, I have to re what I went back and looked at is like, when I started smoking weed in high school, I had to have it all the time. It's like weed, weed, weed 24 seven. Then I got it. And it's what they talk about is it's a progressive disease. Mm -hmm right? So if you have the disease addiction, not if you're just struggling with substance abuse disorder, but if you have the disease of addiction of alcoholism, it's progressive in the sense um, that, you know, maybe there was times where I had some control a little more. But if I look back when I was drinking with my friends, I always drank more. I always wanted more. I was all, you know, I always had this extra gear. Yeah. And so it, it progressed. And yeah, um, you know, I was a heavy, heavy drinker. And then when head was forming, we kind of didn't have our sound yet. We're like, yeah, we're still kind of not that good. And then I discovered methamphetamine. And then that was my muse. I would stay up all night taking photos and pictures and drawing and learning and, you know, drum machines. And uh, like most people in addiction for a while, it works. You know, a lot of people self-medicate because it helps them with their depression or their anxiety or their trauma for me it was working i started i we started being the coolest band in town in a really tough town of huntington beach meaning tough because it was like the skate punks if you weren't cool you're like they would get the fuck out of here you know so we're being accepted in a tough culture to be accepted artistically and so you couldn't tell me i had a problem uh but it just got worse and worse and worse you know
1: wow and within kind of industry and everyone around the same is it kind of because I personally don't know or people listening is everybody in the same kind of drinking and or did was there someone there that actually spotted that there was something going on with you
2: uh my drummer he was a good guy he would he would party pretty hard he didn't have that extra you know couple innings that I always had in me but he called me out when I was into the I got my whole band into the drugs. I had I got my whole head PE, except our DJ, but uh, in the drugs, doing meth with me. When we went to Massachusetts to record our first record, I was like, we got to get out of town. And we did. And then we just got the tr- drugs sent in. Um, so he called me out and he said something to me. He's like, when does it end? And I was like, when does it end? What do you mean? And then years later, I was like, I get it. What he's saying is like, when does this lifestyle stop? The hard thing for me, and I think for most people, but I'll just speak for myself, is especially, this is a great example, I got out there on tour, getting singled out, like Jonathan Davis, the singer of Corn, sat me down like, dude, what's up? I heard you drink a lot. And then and like the Slipknot guys. And then I had a reputation and I couldn't, I was like, why am I getting picked on, man? We're all in here. Why is everybody giving me a hard time? Because I couldn't see it. when <laughs> I just was going way harder than everybody else. Um, Now, I don't blame anybody, but should there have been, I mean, my drummer will tell you, uh, Ben Vaught, BC, he'll tell you he would come to my house. I missed rehearsals a couple of times, which was really unusual because I was like the leader of the band in a sense, musically. And he thought I was going to show up and I would be dead. Well, at that time, they probably should have sat me down. And I'm not saying this to say you guys did wrong. I'm saying this in terms of anybody else hearing this out there. You got to call people out, man you know and i think we've grown a lot as a collective consciousness to understand that if you go into your guitar player's house and you're worried he might be dead because of his behavior then sit the motherfucker down like if you're worried if it it doesn't matter but people get afraid and he i don't think bc was afraid i think we were young and dumb and didn't know what the hell was going on but i think people get afraid to confront their friends um but i think there's something to be said and and uh and I think a lot of codependencies develops out of that because we don't want to hurt their feelings or we don't want to whatever, you know. But there's the problem. A lot of rock stars are celebrities because you get around these yes men, if you will. That, oh, I love it. Oh, you look great up. And you need somebody to go, dude, you're fucking up. I don't mm-hmm. care if you made 30 million on your last fucking movie. You're back doing cocaine. You're going to fucking die. And yeah. they need, you know, to hear that. I'm not going to sit here and watch you die. But get all these people, you know, And what we do as alcoholics and addicts are the same thing with mental health is the people who confront us, we kind of go, well, fine, I'm going to go over here with the people who will sell me the cocaine and snort it with me, you know, but what happened, we have to be okay with confronting people. And because what happens is it's the loss when we start seeing, wow, man, the people I truly care about are not around me anymore. You know, you know, it's not going right. Um, And so what would we rather do as a collective? Would you rather go, look, man, the way you're living ain't cool and you're going to fucking die and I I'll help you if you want it, but I'm not going to watch you kill yourself mm-hmm. and have them die after you told them that and tried, yeah. or would you rather be like, Hey, how you doing? No, it's okay. Well, here, Here's some money you need help with your rent. And then they die. Which would you rather have? I personally would rather go, look, I'm not going to condone you killing yourself. If you want help, I'll help you. But if not, you're on your own. And that's what my family did to me. You know, and that's why I went to rehab. Thank God my brother is smart enough to say, As after I had PE, I quit the band, and I worked for him, I got all depressed, I went back to hard drugs, and finally he's like, dude, get help or you're out of here. And I got help.
1: So was that kind of the pivotal moment for you, or was it something in yourself that suddenly realized as well, shit, my brother's telling me this, but I need to do it for myself as well now? Was this something...
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what you have for me by that time and I think this is key to anybody like this is one of the things I think some young people don't have is I already had in my heart I had been trying for years to figure this thing out. What what's what because I couldn't pin it on any one drug. I just couldn't understand like, you know, don't do this drug or maybe just do, you know, and it was always a problem. And what I had told my brothers like, "Look, I quit the before on my own, I quit the drugs. I could do this again. And then he's like, fine, if you quit on your own, you'll be fine. But what happened was I couldn't stay stopped. I was powerless. I couldn't stay stopped. So it was all the failures of me within myself trying and not pulling it off and then going, okay, bro, I'm going to pull it off and still and not pulling it off a couple times, like right, relapsing. That I was like, okay, so when I got into the treatment center and they're like, step one, you're powerless. And I was like, oh, And then he said, you got an allergy. I was like, Oh, that's why. Even though I was trying to stay away from the drugs, I'd go drink a Coors Light and go, let's go get some cocaine. I was like, I didn't understand that. So it was true for me. So it was the combo of knowing that I was losing and couldn't win. And then my brother creating um, repercussions or whatever the word is, you know? So I was, I was finally, that was my bottom. So the bottom is when you're done digging, the bottom was, I'm now fired. I have no job, no career. I'm going to run out of money. I won't have an apartment. That was enough for me. Some people will go on the streets. That's the part we don't know. Like some people will go way far down. Like, oh
1: yeah, really? Fuck you, man. I got 20 bucks. I'm getting a rock.
2: Why I didn't do that? Cause I'm a baby.
1: <laughs> and even then, I
2: went and I was staying at his house and was like, maybe I'll just go to Thailand with the last of my money and ride some elephants. And then I just started crying and they talk about it, this moment of clarity. And mine was the, my higher self or God or something was like, you're out of control, man. And that sounds like, well, maybe you just said that to yourself. No, because it was such a deeper resonance, hmm. such a deep resonance that I'm out of control, meaning I have no control over anything I'm doing. I was trying to control it. I'll only drink on Tuesday or what, you know, yeah. and it hit me on a deep level. So when I got into steps and it said, you're powerless and your life is unmanageable, meaning you can't control it. And then the second step is a power greater than yourself will restore you to sanity. I'm like, Oh my God, this is me right here.
1: Yeah. I think it's amazing. I love listening to people's story from all walks of life, but if there's anyone who's listening to this, who may be going through addiction problem, who's, who's ultimately been given that, that ultimatum that they need help or, or they're out kind of like yourself, if anyone's feeling apprehension or fear about going into rehab, as someone who's been in rehab, what is the actual notion of it when you go in there? Is it, do we heighten the senses that it's going to be so much bigger and so much confronting, and that's why we don't do it? Or once you're in there, is it a lot easier? I had a pretty
2: good attitude about it. I was a little bit scared. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I was so desperate for change, and that's one of the key ingredients. Some people are still fighting it, you know, addiction, like being out in the ocean and you got this heavy weight that's sinking you and you're like, I'm going to sink. And it's the addiction, but no, I can't give it up. It's like, dude, let go. So most people are afraid of what they're, this is one of the things, well, I'm going to speak for myself. When we get to this jumping off point, as they call it, you can't imagine your life with drugs or booze anymore or you can't imagine your life living this mental health hell you're in anymore Mm. but you also can't imagine life without the drugs or the booze or you can't imagine life without whatever you're going through so it's kind of like you can't see either and for me and what i hear from a lot of people is we think that life and recovery is going to suck right Mm. but the weird thing about that is it's like wait a second Have you ever lived a rad sober life where you worked on yourself? No. So you're making up your future that's going to suck and you literally know nothing about it. So it's this contempt prior to investigation we have. So what helped me was hearing the stories early early on of guys going, I was a junkie eating out of trash cans in the alley, but I I went to rehab and I got sober. Now I have my own art design firm. I'm like, what? Fuck. I want a good life, dude. So I was desperate, I was willing and I tried and I, I had hope because of what I heard these people doing, you know.
1: Wow. And obviously when you was in rehab, like where did Rock to Recovery come from? I mean, you, you've openly spoke about, you, you yeah. started out within rehab. You
2: know, a lot of our, this my story and a lot of our stories is like it's, it's at, not out of virtue. It's out of desperation. So I wasn't like, hey, you know, so I went to rehab out of desperation. In rehab, you know, we we're doing all these therapies. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, all my life, I've thought I was going to create something or maybe I can invent something or I need to start my own company. So I had that mentality going. But in rehab, we were drawing pictures and doing yoga, and there wasn't music. And then I would You know 22 guys and you know it's a clicky and you're like that guy's cool that guy's a weirdo fuck that guy it's just what happens you're all insecure full of shame and guilt but I'd whip out my guitar and do these songs and everybody would be like "Ah!" and it stuck with me or people who never played would go hey I want to play a song or show me a song or I know this one chord so I saw how engaging it was in that setting So the rock to recovery thing came after, you know, I got the corn gig as a result of being sober and towards sober. And then when the corn gig was going away, I was desperate. Like, holy shit, what am I going to do now? I don't have a career. And so I went into my spiritual practices and it was a lot of meditation asking um, where to be led. Show me if I'm supposed to be a sober musician and this is my life. Show me how I can be of service to others. Show me how to help others make a living. And I feel that that was the big prayer. I feel like the universe or God or whatever divine spirit, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same to me, really responds when we're trying to help each other. I think that the energetic alchemy is just exponentially greater. You know, if I'm just like, hey, help me write another number one single. <laughs> I like, okay. okay. But yeah. well, my goal was like, not that I ever wrote one, but my goal was, uh, was yeah, how to help people make a living. And uh, that's where it came from.
1: But what I will ask you is in terms of the meditation, so like myself, it took me quite some time. I'm still on that kind of self-discovery or meditation because my mind runs like 100 miles an hour. And what I did learn is sometimes you just have to let those thoughts come in and let them flow back out. But with yourself in, in kind of your own journey, Was it something that you just kind of fell into your spiritual journey in meditation? Or like myself, did you used to run at 100 miles an hour and then something you had to slowly integrate? Just for anyone listening out there that goes, I've tried to meditate and I can't stop thinking. And What was your personal experience?
2: I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be authentic. I get so frustrated hearing people say that because it doesn't matter if your head runs and what's really weird about this conversation. Cause I've had it a thousand times. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I literally sit down with somebody. And they go, I want to learn and meditate. Okay, cool. Now listen, your head's going to run. That's what it does. It yeah. doesn't matter. Even if it goes wild, it's still working. It's good for you. Yeah. But my brain runs too much. It's like, I, I'm telling you, it does not matter. So it's kind of like there's a, there's a psychology thing. If I say, like, green to you, don't see green anywhere. All you're going to see is green. So when you're focusing on trying to stop your brain from running, all you're going to notice is how much your brain is running. Yeah. The only thing we want to do in meditation is be okay with whatever our brain does. It's okay. Hmm. Because what's happening is your brain, your heart beats, your lungs breathe, your eyes blink. You know what I mean? Your your brain is going to run. It's never going to stop running. But what happens in meditation, if we can imagine, when I'm going through my day, I'm like, okay, get over here. I'm like, okay, I'm going to grab this and I'm going go over here. Oh, don't forget. This. My brain is doing nine million things at once. Yeah. When we sit down and meditate, it may still be thinking like it's racing around, but you bring it to a singular focus. So It's not about how many thoughts we have uh, or or whatever. It's just a practice of like, you know, most med have a focal point like the breathing or a mantra or you're counting or something. And it's just the practice of like, Oh, my head drifted off again, bring it back. And yeah. by the way, so everybody knows I don't try to control my brain. I think the entire time in meditation and I'm okay with it because I get a lot of great ideas. I'm never in meditation trying to stop my thinking. I'm actually going, go ahead. Cause I'm trying, I, what I believe is in meditation we're creating space. Yeah creating space I think people think that their brains thinking more because they're paying more attention to it but it's actually thinking less but when we sit down and close our eyes, oftentimes I've downloads on like books or ideas oh you should do this you should do that and I'm like okay bring it yeah and I just let it go and I still find it to be effective effective hugely effective
1: that's where where I have sense of because what I tended to find was I tried to control it at the beginning and I'd, I'd be listening to meditation and I'd be setting intentions. And then after a while, like you say, consistency, consistency Sorry, I'd be like, you know what? I'm not setting an intention. I'm just going to lay here. I'm just going to let it flow. And, it, and it's progression. Like if you're training or anything, you're training the brain or you're just letting everything go. And then stuff started coming. It's funny that you said like you let your brain run and creative ideas. Because a lot of these initiatives that I'm coming out the virtual hands and all this kind of stuff, just pop into my head as I'm meditating. Whereas previously I used to think, oh, well, no, that's just my head telling me that because I'm thinking about it. But it's Uh, a meditation.
2: I believe we get spiritual downloads. What's what's funny is, and I have had so many of them. So a long time ago, I said I wanted to write a book called The Vortex of Radness. And Mm I have never once sat down to try to uh write this book ever i can imagine okay i'm gonna write the book where do i start i don't i will sit down in a meditation without even being having the book on my mind i have a couple businesses we have so many projects i'm not even thinking and it will just start downloading and in my meditations this is all the vortex of radness notes that i've gotten out there's hundreds of these hundred, and i've never asked for any look it still just keeps going I've never asked for any of them and it's just a download. So I just think it's pretty mm-hmm. uh, preconceived notion of, of what we're supposed to have happen in meditation. I think if people let go and just go, I'm going to meditate and see what happens.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I just think the power of creating space is, is huge. And I think to circle back on your question originally was I came to meditation out of desperation because what? I was lost and I wanted answers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do I do? I hated the job I had. I felt like I needed a career. And, and, and actually, Rock to Recovery came to me from a meditation. So imagine if I was so hung up on my brain not working, and I was like this. I was like, okay, God, I don't know what to do. I, what should I do? I am almost out of money here. I have no job. And then I meditate. And run, is like, you should put music in rehab. About Rock to Recovery? okay cool but how could that come to me if i'm going i don't know what to do and what should i do mom i don't know you know what i mean like
1: chill the fuck down you know yeah so so tell anybody that's, that's listening to this like a little bit more about rock to recovery and what you've done and how many how many centers you've been in and, and where it's gone to yes yeah, so i started it was rock to
2: recovery was to get the healing elements of playing music in the hands of non-musicians. And I, I kind of stumbled onto some gold there because I didn't realize at the time how powerful that was because everybody will how gold is. Well when you listen to music, it lights up half of your brain. Great, really cool, magical. But when we play um, music, as was my favorite going by who's actually a musician? Uh, when we play music, it our whole brain, it's emotional and motor. And now sometimes what I like is that dance is always trying to out kind of spiritual stuff and takes them a time to kind of catch up. But you know when we play music, even if you're just a beginner hitting one note, because that's the same as Jimi Hendrix shredding. That's long. What it does is it helps stimulate brain and body chemistry and helps with dopamine and endorphins and serotonin and all these and oxytocin. Oxytocin, science calls the molecule, is released. When we hug people, when women deliver babies, um, so it helps our feeling connected. The opposite of you know mental health addiction is connection. So we get we write songs to everybody. We get them getting their heart out and their feelings and putting their emotions the on. Music tends to open people up more. Almost like drinking gets people start telling you the story. They have music gets them to start being a little more vulnerable. And in the course of the song, the hook, we 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 get dark in the verses and talk about whatever pain we got to talk about. And then in the verse, we try to turn, I'm sorry, the course, we turn it to the hope or the tool for recovery or the optimist, you know, part. Um, and so anyhow, we now work with, Oh gosh, we've worked with over 200 treatment centers Our, what we do is we integrate mm. as an ancillary service. So if you're in a treatment center, we come in every Thursday at 9am or whatever to bring you this music, this therapeutic music uh, session. And we do, I don't know if that's super loud, they're building something, but uh, we do 500 sessions every month. But it's not just with addiction. We do a lot with mental health. We work with Wounded Warriors. Um, We have a contract with the Department of Defense, which is in the United States. It's the Department of Defense. And we've contracted to work with Wounded Warriors. We have flown around the country to work with wounded veterans who are dealing with PTSD and trauma and um, combat injury. you know, the corn gig and rock recovery in all my life, I give credit to meditation, man. It's always been asking to be guided and listening to what's coming. And uh, here we are.
1: Amazing story. I mean, you've had an incredible career and obviously you've, got, you've gone through adversity and you've turned it and now you're helping other people. I think it's amazing. I'll finish off with, with just a quick question on... So we got a mutual friend, Rob Mack, and he he told me a profound moment when he started helping other people. And I know you've been in so many centers and helped. Was there a profound moment for you where you actually gave someone an instrument, a non-musician? And it literally they told you their story and how what you had done had impacted them?
2: Yeah, um, well,
1: well you probably we get- <laughs> You've probably got a lot of stories like that.
2: We get a lot of feedback from veterans and wounded veterans and in and, uh, and all sorts of people, especially sometimes it's cool because you go in there and you see them a couple times and then two years later they'll be like, hey, rock recovery was one of the things that helped me stay sober the most or whatever. But there's a story that was really profound that I want to share, which is I didn't go – now we've done 16, 20 – 20,000 sessions we have a lot of data we know how this thing works there's a lot more science around it but when I was first doing it by myself it wasn't an organization with you know 15 employees I was I was really scared that it was gonna fail you know that somebody would be like get your stupid guitar out of here so one of my early sessions um, this guy came in we call him mr. Pink because he came in late to group and he was detoxing from heroin And if you detox from heroin, you're you're what they call dope sick. It's like the worst flu ever, but you can't sleep. You feel like you're falling out of your skin. You're defecating yourself. You're vomiting. You're just like sick for days. It is hell. So he came in this this session late and he was tripping mentally. He was angry. "Ah, You know, why am I in here? They're probably like, hey, dude, come on. Session time. Go in there. Ah." You know, why am I in here? Why is a stupid guitar in here? I'm a heroin junkie and I'm probably going to die a junkie. Why are we in here doing this? You know what I mean? I probably should get some help. He was literally like just thinking out loud. And I said, I get it, man. I had a problem with drugs. So we had that connection. Like I had addiction too. And I had a shaker left and it was a little pink egg shaker. I said, Look, we're writing a song together about our addiction, about our struggles. And here's the groove. I just want you to like get in the groove. We're going to stop on the course and come in any time. So here's a guy who's physically ill, suicidal ideation, all this thing, depressed, whatever. And by the end of the session, he, you know, midway through the session, he's like, wait, wait, wait. So the course goes four times to do it. And he's like, ah, yeah. He's like, you're coming back here next week, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, man, I'll be back. <laughs> like, yeah. Because I saw his, I'm getting chills. I saw his, not just his mental, yeah. you know, his, what they call it measures of wellness. He had, he was happy. He was uplifted. Yeah. And frankly, his ailments were relieved. And at that point I was like, Holy shit. And um, that's when I would call my friends and go like, before I had any employees, dude, you got this thing I'm doing right, you gotta see these guys and the transformation. They're like, Yeah, that's cool. What are you doing for dinner? It's <laughs> like you know
1: that truly is amazing. So um, what, what what what's next for everything? I mean obviously at the moment we can't do much with uh, isolation, but these connection tools and everything like that what's next for uh, rock to recovery how far are you taking it and and you
2: well we have our yearly fundraiser where we honor rock stars hopefully we'll still get to have that in september we will see we're going to have to get into some unique types of fundraising um for rock to recovery we've been offering a lot of zoom online sessions we got zoom like anybody listening we have zoom breathworks sessions you should really just go to rock to to recovery dot com or rock recovery facebook rock recovery instagram twitter we're doing a lot of online zoom stuff um meetings and meditations and yogas and guitar lessons we're trying to support our community um we're gonna we're doing a book that we've written about some of the little vignettes on the stories of tra- incredible transformations from being sex traffic to whatever so you know whatever beautiful outcome and transformation so we'll be working on getting that out to the public just to Share a bit more of what we're doing. I am going to do a selfish plug. I have a band called Human, mm-hmm. spelled like Hue as in color H U E. It's so confusing. <laughs> but, so it's you. Yep. but the E's are threes. I mean, you got to be kind of complicated. <laughs> so I'm writing some music. What's beautiful part about it is, um, and it is part of my recovery story, is after. Um I'm looking down because I'm gonna show you guys. Uh after you know being over writing new music, um I have a couple guys that work for Rock Recovery. My guys are like rock stars. And so we've um created a band together. It's kind of cut off, but you get it. H U3 M3N. And we just released our first song. You want that again? H U3M3N. Um find that. Yeah, we're, we got it on Instagram, um, and, and YouTube and uh somebody's of course calling me let's see here (laughs) wait there it is right there we just released a song on there and uh so it's really exciting to be out there creating again um i believe that anything's possible you know what i mean i'm not gonna get hung up on like well dude you're a little old to be starting the band it's fun to be creating two other guys work for rock recovery we're really stoked on how the music's coming out so yeah
1: well, it's funny, I was gonna say, I was gonna prop you up there, mate, because you said you, you've had an incredible career for over 20 years. You, you don't look old at all, mate. Like, yeah, you've gone through some stuff. looking good, mate.
2: <laughs> well, okay, I'm glad you said that, because first, can we just acknowledge the COVID hair? I was making the joke that the way you can look at like the earth and see different eras of like climate and whatever. Here's the eras of like, you know, I used to have blonde hair and then COVID hit and then. So this is what's happened. So it looks scrappy. It's because I'm self quarantined.
1: Um, but thank you. You're thank welcome. You, but in the in the U.S. Well, oh, so you guys are in lockdown. So here in Sydney, Australia, it's it kind of weird because we're on semi-isolation. We can go out for essentials like you guys, but here you can actually still go to the hairdressers, but for 30 minutes. It, I, I I don't get that, but no judgment there. i <laughs> just like 30 minutes. Like isn't it like a, a it can be transmitted from body to anyway, anyways. Nine
2: minutes are under and you're safe. It's really that 31th minute.
1: Oh, it's, it's weird. But, um, I just want to say mate, on behalf of, of the campaign, obviously, and myself for everything that you do. And I mean, for coming on the campaign first of all and getting behind it. And then the virtual hand with the meditation and for everything you do in terms of humanitarian work and, Helping others, I think, is incredible. I think you're incredible, mate, inspirational. I will put all the links to where people can find out about your stuff, Rock to Recovery, um, also your new group, uh, Human. And yeah, any 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 final words to anyone listening out there who may be struggling at this time or any time at all?
2: Well, first of all, we got to give some love to Glenn um, for being activated by a tragedy tragedies. And turning it into positive is the same thing I'm trying to do. What we find is in our pain, uh, we can really be activated and use that as the greatest tool and impot- get out there and try to help and create change. So again, I don't do this because I'm an angel or because of virtue. I do this because this is how I feel that I can stay kind of sane. So yeah. the same second I get into self-serving and just worry about Wes all the time, I'm going to get very spiritually and mentally sick. So I want to thank you um, for the opportunity, the message I always like to give everybody is to realize that you're not too sick. You're not too poor. You're not too rich. You're not too abused. You're not too traumated. There's somebody that's always had it worse than you or better than you that has made it out and survived. You're worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. So many people think they're not worth it. Everyone is a divine creation of the universe we're all divine creations of the universe and so if you can hang on and have hope and know that somebody out there many people out there just like you went through just what you went through or way worse or way better and found a way out there's a whole community and culture people like glenn and myself and millions of others that love to help people just get connected and open your mouth. Tell people exactly how you feel because that's what we do. I'm telling you, even when I had the corn gig, I was having suicidal ideation. We talk about this stuff and we love and support each other.
1: Yeah. I think that's amazing, mate. Just just, just building that community. But again, I want to thank you for your time, mate. I do... Truly appreciate it and everything you do. So, anybody that's listening out there, um, all I want to say is if you want to listen to this episode or any of the episodes, just simply find us on iHeartRadio or Spotify, Imperfectly Perfect Podcast. Until next time, guys, stay safe and look after each other.
0: To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect Campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.